You are listening to Agency Work, the podcast that provides career advice for people who want to work at a creative agency. I am your host, Parker Playstead. Today I am talking with Janine Nock. Janine is a user experience and product designer currently working at CarMax in Richmond, Virginia. Janine has a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in print media and a Bachelor of Arts degree in visual and critical studies. Both were earned at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Janine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Parker. Sure. This is going to be an interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So let me give the audience a little background before we begin the conversation. You have more than 10 years of professional experience working in visual design, and you have worked on the early stages of research, brainstorming, and prototyping, all the way through to development and delivery of the final product. On your resume, you point out experience in the following areas. User and stakeholder research and requirements gathering, journey mapping for the customer experience, user flows, system usability scale testing and scoring, persona modeling, card sorting and content analysis, and user research scripts for moderated and unmoderated studies. Yes. (laughs) So clearly you've been involved in well-structured projects for user experience design. That is correct. And I don't know what any of that stuff means, but it looks impressive to me. Thank you. (laughs) Our audience may have heard two guests from season one of this podcast where we talked about design thinking and user experience design. This is a topic that I know very little about, but I see the value in applying design thinking to solve business problems. So, Janine, you have an interesting outline for our conversation today. I appreciate the work you've put into getting that outline together and thinking about the the topics we want to talk about. And I think the audience is going to enjoy this episode. So let's start with design thinking and game storming. Okay. I think they both go hand in hand. Um, Design thinking really has five stages. If you look at Google Design Sprints, you can even make that into a two-week sprint and double up on the days. You're going to emphasize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. So each one of those days or every two days you change it up and focus on one area. Game storming fits really nicely in the beginning because this is your co-collaboration where the team comes together and they can do a bunch of different exercises. And it's really coming out of innovation and looking at how innovators in the world have created ideas and come up with this idea of play. Because one of the best ways to learn is actually through play. Uh, You have games for playing, reviewing meetings, decision making. Maybe you're doing a friend or foe game for stakeholders, you know, empathizing with their gains and losses, how they're going to do within what you're trying to build, and getting people to align with the user. With user experience, the user is always number one as a UX designer. The stakeholder and business, they're important to me, but not as important as the user. I'm really rallying myself for them to make sure their needs are met, because if their needs are met and we have a good, solid product they want, easy peasy. My my job is done as a UX designer. Um, I work a lot in small A-B testing, especially on web or app, where I do little teeny what I call Amazon tests. But then we'll go back after those learnings and start applying other ideas or ideologies from our learnings where we're emphasizing and getting ready to build and ideate another bigger idea and then test that as well. 
uh, I have a discovery session we'll, where we'll be doing game storming, and I haven't figured out what I'm going to use yet, but there's a really great book that I recommend. It's a playbook for game storming. Um, if you are working with product creative people or even people that aren't in any of those realms, I really recommend it. It's um, literally called Game Storming, a playbook. And it's just co-creation tools to get those creative juices flowing. I've always loved seeing what other ideas people come up with. I remember reading in Reader's Digest maybe 10, 20 years ago when I graduated college. And my mom told me to make friends with people outside the arts because it would help stimulate like innovation and new ideas. And it was after she read that article, and she's pretty right because game storming hits on that, where you're inviting other people with different thoughts and mindsets and ideas to play and make something with you. Um, There are some core games. There's some for fresh thinking. Uh, I went and said friend or foe. A lot of this is you're facilitating to a group of people and helping them come up with ideas in a set manner. Um, And you can apply that to some of your early design thinking or what's called a design jam. Uh, I recommend the design jam for a couple reasons. Maybe you have something quick you want to work on. So take all your research, find out what you know about that user, and then start coming up with ideas that would relate to that and bringing that forward with testing and prototyping and then come on back once you've let it out into the world. That's the beauty of today is that you could always release stuff and then repair it, update it. You have new learnings. You have maybe a lot of people coming to what you've built. Maybe you don't have a lot of people. So you'd go back out and try and find out what you can get out of it by emphasizing with who your target audiences or users are. Janine, the game storming explanation was great. I love the reference to the book. Um, it's something that sounds fun, uh, something that I would like to know more about. So I may put some time into learning more about that, but it sounds like a really interesting approach to uh, user experience design. The next thing on the outline today is holistic design for user experience. And you had some great points around that, so I'll just turn it over to you to explain what holistic designing for user experience means. So this kind of goes into that early part of design thinking, whether you're following IDEO, D-School, Um, IBM even has a design thinking model that's short and sweet, that early empathy stage where you're learning about users, thinking about every way they might possibly touch your product or what you're trying to build. So for example, let's say you're trying to buy a sweater online. Are you going to Google for sweaters and go through to a store that way? Do you have a bookmark? Is it a pay-per-click ad? Social media, what does that persona and how do they find that particular item? What is the job to be done as the user is trying to find what their, um, what their experience is? Uh, holistically, just think of every single touch point. Every time I start a project, I map everything out because I want to see what that user is going to be doing. What are they looking at? How might they enter my experience? And really think out any problems they might have. And then applying different research methodologies to test to see if it's possible and feasible for a user to go through that experience. What's the time completion for them to get to A to B? And then um, along with some early user experience testing or user testing, um, click path testing, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, Pure research is another good one. Pure methodology, if people aren't familiar with that, you can look at it for uxstrategy.com. They have a whole write-up on that where you go step-by-step and you analyze Um, the heuristics of actually going through an experience. Where will the user have problems? So that's why you want to holistically look at something. 
where could they totally hate your product and be like, I never want to use this again? You'd be surprised what some people say on corporate sites about not loving the experience and it's not working for them. So how do you make that better and easy? Because we don't want to think about these things. We want them to be natural and intuitive and don't make me think, I just want A or B or C and I just want to get there. So as a UX designer, I want to look at all those possibilities and be aware of what they might possibly run into. Janine, this is really interesting stuff with a lot of interesting details, but I wonder if this is kind of a time-consuming thing that uh, some people might see as a burden and they don't have time for all these steps and they just need to get stuff done. So can you give us some context around the timing or how much time is devoted to these uh, things you described earlier so that we understand, is this something that can be done in a day, done in a you know, week, done in an hour? What's, what's kind of the time yeah. context? Yeah, no problem. So I run a two-hour discovery each week with the team I'm currently on, and I'll apply different game storming strategies or we'll do user research. I tend to switch it up because I find that if you change up the activity, you open up new avenues for different ways to think. I'll even apply some design thinking exercises um, just to give people a little mind jump, I guess, or mind warm up because we tend to get entrenched in doing the same old, same old every day. Holistic designing for user experience, that's just something I automatically do when I kick off a project. If I'm kicking off a project, I'm mapping everything out. I just collect. I want to see holistically what everything's going to look like. It's a guarantee. I have three projects, pretty big projects right now, and I have three pretty big maps. So there's a lot of touch points with little arrows, and I call them my ugly maps because it's really me just figuring out where everything goes. Um, I would say mapping, you kind of can spend an hour and a half to two hours on it. If it's an ugly map, maybe even less. Nicer maps where you're really doing like a customer journey map or a service blueprint, maybe five to eight hours, depending on how detailed you want to get and how beautiful you want it to look. I find a lot of times after doing a couple of really pretty maps in the past, those don't always stick around too long or they end up in some war room and you never see them again. And then designing for inclusion, I feel like that has been ingrained in my mind since I came into the UI UX world back in LA. Um, it's just something I picked up on and realized like, hey, if I want to make this work and like make sure our audiences are seeing what they need or getting what they need, I need to think about somebody besides myself because like people have different needs. They really do even stakeholders. And I can think back to a time when I was working for a tech company that I thought about doing something in a better way, but it really wasn't what the actual customer wanted. And it created like a lot of issues. I had to go back and fix stuff. And like, I got pay docked at that point because I was like, oh, but I'm solving this better than they would have expected. And now sometimes you really just got to solve it away. A person wants it to be solved. You know, you don't always understand all their needs because you haven't asked all the questions or thought about things in a different way. So consistently thinking about designing for inclusion and how I might be able to get into that person's mental model or headspace and understand them better has been a big part of my role within the last like 10 years or longer, even when I did museum and photography work, especially photography, editorial photography, understanding people's wants and needs is really important in the creative industry. I mean, very few people I think make iconic 
beautiful art randomly. And, you know, I'm sure at some point they actually thought about what other people might have wanted or found beautiful. Janine, I appreciate those details to help us and the audience understand how the work gets done and what the workflow looks like. At this point, I want to switch over to our next topic, and this is uh, an interesting topic. This was when you were in Los Angeles. You were there for about five years. Unfortunately, you were there during the recession. I was living out there at the same time I was out in L.A. during the recession. Um, and then you came back to Richmond about six years or so ago. But you were out there freelancing in Los Angeles, which is a big city, competitive market. And we had an interesting conversation about how you approached uh, landing freelance work and applying for jobs and the, the basic concept of hustling. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so you were out there hustling, getting work, and uh, that's something I think uh, people in our audience can appreciate and understand the, the challenges of getting out there and finding work and finding clients and uh, how competitive that can be in Los Angeles being a very competitive market. So I'd like you to talk about how you approached that um, and how you kind of got some uh, information that helped you land some jobs and uh, find some clients and get the work. So I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, let you talk about that. Yeah, no problem. I had moved out of Chicago, got on a plane with my cat, And moved to L.A. on spring of the moment kind of deal and lived on a friend's couch. And I thought, oh, L.A., there's going to be more opportunity. I'll easily get a job here. I did great in Chicago getting work. I worked for a museum. I was a photographer for a museum. No problem. Los Angeles, tons of opportunities. So lo and hold, recessions going on. It had started in Chicago, and it just got Worse as I was moving out of Chicago, and I thought maybe L.A. looked like a pretty good market. I'd been sizing L.A. for a while, that this recession might not hit there. Well, that was not the case. It did. So after a while, I'd wake up every day, apply to a couple hundred, maybe 50, maybe 100 um, jobs just to see what I could get. And after a while, I was even applying to, like, Office Depot to be an associate clerk thinking, like, well, I can't get a job here. Maybe I could be a waitress or whatever. And I realized, like, hey, there's actually not a lot of jobs and there's a lot of people trying to make the same survival as you. You got to up your game and outthink them. You got to find a new way to do this. So I started putting this little tracker that was popular in Japan on my emails. It was, like, um, Squishy Pig or something. And it was just, like, almost like a uh, Facebook pixel, but it was for email at the time. So I could track who was opening my email. So I'm like, all right, cool. So my emails are opening. These are great. Doesn't mean I'm getting like calls to come in, even though I have a website, a resume, a portfolio, I'm still not getting any calls, but people are opening my emails. Cool. So I got that accomplished, but I need to actually go in and have interviews and meet people. So I start going to meetups, I'm socializing, I'm finding work that way, but it's like a constant hustle. So I have to really think of how I'm going to outsmart people and be aware of what my competition is. So at the time, Craigslist was very popular to find jobs. I'm not sure how you would apply this strategy today because everything's through LinkedIn and you can track the companies. But what I was doing was I'd find a job post for a popular company like Disney 
or Getty, and I'd match that job description and put a post on Craigslist. And, you know, you get a couple of hundred, maybe thousand people applying for that job. You can quickly weed out who your competition is and figure out like, okay, these top 10 people, so say a thousand apply, 10 of them are going to be your competitors for jobs. These are who I'm competing with. I need to know what their portfolio looks like, what their resume looks like. How are they getting jobs? Like these people are solely freelance. I can tell they're solely freelance. I want to do what they do. So I started copying either how they laid out their books or laid out their resume and got a little smarter of how I would navigate and started getting more return on my investment. Like I worked really hard at this for three months where I became very aware of like, these are the top 50 people I will compete with for photo jobs. These are the top 10 people I'd compete with for web jobs because I was working both photography and web and special effects, pretty much anything that involved Photoshop, Illustrator, or Fireworks, anything that involved Adobe, really. I was using those programs, so I was applying for jobs that required those things. Um, Especially, like, as a photographer, it's a little harder to get jobs, so I eventually made a switch over to web and apps doing, like, native app work, which was really great, or websites, which I had built webs from the age of 16. Um, So looking at who my competitors were, what do they have, and how can I match them and be a major competitor without them knowing. I will say after that, almost every place I've worked, if we've worked together, I've probably looked at your portfolio within the first like week or two of meeting you, just so I have you on my radar and I'm aware of like who you are and where we might compete for jobs. After going through a recession where you have nothing and you're living in a closet and you're eating food from the dollar store, you pretty much learn like, hey, this is what I need to do to survive, even in LA, which has a big market. Uh, Once you start actually going out and getting interviews, you also meet more and more people who can help you get jobs. And I realized that after a couple like roundtable interviews where I'm sitting there with like 10, 15 people at a table and they're asking us questions and then kicking people out, you eventually talk to people and they kind of hook you up with other jobs or maybe they have something that would be better suited for you. So you build a lot of connections, like always build connections with people who work in your industry um, special, especially like having done this for 10 years, I didn't realize how many people I knew in Richmond until recently, recently who do the same work that I do. So making sure I have like good relationships with them to chat and, you know, they're still like, we're like a kin. We've been in the trenches together. So be aware of those people, be pleasant, be nice. There's something to be said about being nice and not like a crazy competitive jerk. Nobody wants to deal with that. Um, You might be able to jump career levels having that mindset, but trust me, if you're an asshole, everybody's aware of it, and it's very hard to keep teams if you're not a decent human being, uh, having seen that through a couple of different companies I've worked for. Janine, that's a great story, and having been in L.A., uh, I was lucky enough to have some friends in the uh, movie studio business. And what I saw was like what you described, that these people, they get into the work, they get known, uh, people recognize what they can contribute and their work ethic and so on, and they just get picked up from one project to another project to another project. And when uh, a TV show ends or a movie ends or whatever, you know, the project is, when it ends, you know, they collect some unemployment for a while and then they go back to work uh, when the next project comes up. I was talking to one guy, and he we were talking about looking for a job, and he said he's never given his resume to anybody. It's always been relationships 
that have gotten him into the next project and the next project and the next project. Yeah. And it's uh, it's like constant freelance. Uh, it's you know it's a constant stringing of gigs together. So it's it's an interesting life. It's a it's it's a scary life for some people who don't like that inconsistency. But for some people, they love the variety and, and you know they work intensely for a while. Then they've got some time off. Then they work intensely on yep. the next project. So it's a it's an interesting environment out there. And your story reminded me of uh, some of the conversations I've had with my friends out there. It's not for everyone, I will say that, because you never know when your next paycheck is, especially when you hit Thanksgiving to, I would say, Martin Luther King Day. Like, those two solid months don't expect work, and that kind of surprised me. Um, I learned to save up, and then you have months where you work just crazy amount of hours, and then maybe you have a week or two off, and you go to Palm Springs, and then you go back to working like a maniac, so... Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a strange life out there. Yes. <laughs> so the next topic I want to get into on our outline, uh, you have experience of working in house at a company and uh, working at an agency and working as a contractor. So you've yes. spanned those three different experiences of contracting, working in house, and working uh, at an agency for clients. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the differences of those experiences and give us give people a little bit of insight on uh, maybe what you liked and didn't like about those uh, different types of experiences. All righty. So if you're just looking for money, like the most amount of money you're going to make, it's probably going to be contracting. But the benefits and the 401k and healthcare aren't going to be that great. But you will probably make more money than anybody in-house or agency. Um, that is one benefit. You're also only there for 40 hours. You're not working over 40 hours. So if you're at a place that has a lot of political BS going on, as a contractor, you can just ignore that. You have a contracting company that'll step in and take care of any issues. So sometimes people think that if you're contracting, you have a better chance of being fired or kicked out on a whim. Well, I've also worked at companies where they cleared out everybody who was a full-time employee and kept the contractors. Uh, that happened within one of my first years working here for a major company in Richmond. Uh, in-house, you are not locked down to 40 hours a week. You will probably work more than that. However, 401k health benefits, maybe you get some stock options, are going to be pretty spectacular. And I will say, as you get older, you probably want the 401k and the health benefits just because, you know, you might be healthy, have a good life, but you never know what might happen. You could be hospitalized on New Year's Day because you broke a finger or something like that. We're contracting, good luck. You might not, you might be paying out of pocket a lot of money. So agency work is probably the best work. It's the most interesting and it could be all over the place. However, the pay is not as great as in-house or contracting and health benefits and 401k sometimes are not as great either. Uh, however, I will recommend if you're younger, that's probably one of the best things to do because you will work on all kinds of projects that you never thought of. However, they do own you and they're very clear that they own you and you will be there at all hours of the day. And they'll sprinkle nice perks like dry cleaning and taxi service and you know, maybe you have untapped beer or wine or 
you know, happy hours every day at four, but really you're not leaving there until nine or 10 o'clock at night because you're going to go back to work after that beer or wine. So I think nobody tells people that and they're kind of delusioned into like agencies being this great thing. You know, really great early 20s, maybe internship at an agency would be nice. I don't really recommend it as you get older because you really want the healthcare in 401k. So I feel like in-house is almost better for that unless you have a spouse where you can get their health care and then contribute to a 401k and contract where you get the better money. I know I've known a couple couples who do that where one person works for a corporation, the other one does contracting because the money is better and they just have joint health care. Also, if you live with somebody for over a year in Virginia, you can have shared health care. Nobody talks about that, but it is true. Supposedly, like a lot of companies offer that here. Yeah. So in-house, you're also going to have to deal with all the politics. So if you have a company that has a lot of politics, guess what? You're involved in that more than you'd like to be. Agencies can have a lot of politics. There's a lot of stuff where they don't always empathize with the user, and it's more of a get-it-done-because-I-say-so mentality than actually thinking about what the problem is. Or, hey, you know, the company loved your idea, but why don't you work on 10 more after you've already done like 20 different pitches for an experience or creative piece? You know, maybe it's a brochure or a commercial. Like, you know, that gets kind of old after a while. Like you've already won, just move on and like have that downtime. Agencies will work you to death if they can. Janine, this has been a fascinating journey you've taken us on today. Uh, I've really enjoyed listening to these stories and these insights from you. But at this point, I've got to wrap up the, the podcast episode. We've reached our time limit. To our audience, you have been listening to the Agency Work Podcast. My guest today has been Janine Nock. We have been talking about design thinking, game storming, holistic design for user experience and thinking about the user and being inclusive, her creative approach to landing work in Los Angeles, and the differences between working at an agency, working in-house, and working as a contractor. To learn more about Janine, go online to her website at janine-ux-strategy.com. So that's J-A-N-I-N-E hyphen U-X hyphen s-t-r-a-t-e-g-y dot com and you can also google my name i chose that very long link to rank highly in ux and ux strategy i come up wonderfully in those google searches yeah yeah that was a smart move that was a smart yeah. move well thank you janine thank you thanks for having me and to our audience thank you for listening I will be back next week with a new guest, and I hope you will tune into that episode. This podcast was recorded at Red Amp Audio in Richmond, Virginia. This is Agency Work signing off.